Listen, listen, listen. This is a friendly intervention. You need help. <laughs> Contact a professional. You need to reach a happy place. <laughs> Henrik, what the hell are we doing? This is starting to feel like a job post rather than a hobby. <laughs> this this has really does start to work, feel like work at this point. <laughs> we just finished one episode <laughs> on Sunday and now it's Tuesday and here we go again. And I mean, I mean, we can barely do this. I, I mean, wasn't there a moment in time when we made the the solemn promise never to do two episodes in a week again? Yeah, uh, could be. I, I guess that was the time when we were last time doing the backlog episodes for the Christmas break. Yeah, well, at least, you know, we are still making one episode technically per week. So <clears throat> what you're hearing now is, of course, the Hellraiser <clears throat> marathon, I guess, because... Which is also something we promise we'll never do again. The fans yeah. And, and, and not, not only did you shoehorn the Bond Marathon, but you also forced me to make, do the Hellraiser Marathon. So this, this is like the two guys never learning from their past mistakes, the podcast. <laughs> I'm doing this all for you now, Henrik, because we did Halloween. We have to do Hellraiser, right? What, what, what did I ever actually do to you to deserve all this? Really? Your favorite uh, film the, the, franchise. The... I mean, I associate Hen- Henrik... Hellraiser. It even starts with the same letters, goddammit. It, it, it does, it does. And I I made it perfectly clear, clear ways back. I, I'm not interested in do, doing franchise marathons and we can skip the Hellraisers and we don't even have to... T- we wouldn't... Like, if it would have been up to me, we, we wouldn't have had to touch even the first one. Oh, wow. Well, I definitely wanted to touch at least the, the first one, which is a classic which is inescapable in this podcast when you're hosting this with Henrik. But the marathon, I can't think of any other kind of a, a franchise or fi- uh, like a lot of films that we could do here that could be easy enough for the both of us. Well, you can try something like next time the killer dog and the killer elephant horror film, and killer whatever. Well, there, there, there is a whole bunch of killer animal Films. Like they are, they are subgenre of their own right. We, we can well, simply go through killer whale horror films. Well, yeah, it's up to you. Uh, if it's, uh, I don't really care as long as we fill, you know, the episode list. So then, then I can go on my holidays and. But but this is how it is behind the scenes of of this podcast. Like I, I do all these nice things and sacrifices for Kari, and Kari puts me through this torture, which is. Well, once again, doing two two episodes a week and touching upon the Hellraiser franchise. Yeah. Oh, what? I have a co-host. Finally. <laughs> time to get him into trouble. In Hellraiser 3 this time. Hell on Earth. Is yeah. it uh, talking something about this podcast as well? I, I, I guess we have kind of mentioned Hellraiser 3 
numbers of times times in the previous episodes yeah yeah it is uh, unfortunate it's a film, it's a film. It, it, it did happen it, it it exists in in 1992 they they made a film directed by anthony hickox that is also a fact henrik that is also a fact that the man who made who is best known for his two waxworks is he known who, for something like Known for cheap and low-rated films. Well, well, outside of uh, outside of Hellraiser, there, there is some kind of a cult following for for Waxwork One and Two, and, and mm. there was even a tie-up video game for what was it Waxwork One. So that that is that is relatively something like a franchise, and he did make one sequel to the Warlock Warlock franchise. Was it the second or or the third one? The second one, if I remember correctly, Warlock 2. I've gathered that his most appreciated film in his resume is Sundown, the Vampire in Retreat, which he did before Hellraiser 3. I don't know if this was some kind of a thing that he would put on his CV and now let me do some Hellraiser. I I, I don't know know about putting it on his CV, but uh, after Warlock, I, as far as I I know, his his career has been quite on the downside. It's been relatively quiet and very much straight to video. Like the, the last film I did did hear about from him was in two thousand five, straight to video Steven Seagal B-list action film Submerged. Which was, mm. which is from the timeline when even even Steven Seagal himself had had started to slumming. Ah, uh, no, 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 Henrik, you that that's the first thing you have to know about Steven Seagal. If it's with Steven Seagal, it automatically is fantastic. Some something that tells me that that you haven't watched a Seagal film past Under Siege one. <clears throat> actually, actually, I went through the trouble of collecting about 15 Steven Seagal DVDs. And, uh, okay, just to put the jokes aside, the recent ones, like, especially after 2000s, there is some really serious shit going on there. Not the good type of shit. Listen, listen, listen. this is a friendly intervention. Like, this is what it is. You need help. <laughs> Contact a professional. You, I you forgot need to add. reach a happy place. <laughs> I forgot to add, I, I suppose this will not help my case in any way, but I bought those movies in preparation for Kuninkaan Yö, <laughs> which was supposed to be like a Steven Seagal uh, event of watching movies during and, the weekend. And, and then you go around wondering why your film event, weekend, night, big happenings eventually fell flat. They did not. <laughs> like, I, I, I can give you, a, give you a hint. Those 50 Steven Seagal films. <laughs> yeah. Never never happened. So it was mostly a joke anyway. And uh, people thought so. Then I was like, oh, okay. I guess I'm stuck with these films. All right. But yeah, Hellraiser 3, if we can get to this one after this uh, unfortunate revelation. Kevin which, Bernhardt. Which, which, which one mm. was the unfortunate revelation? Your Steven Seagal collection or Hellraiser 3, because I'm not completely sure which one we are talking about. Let's find out. Like, 
Kevin Bernhardt is playing GP Monroe here, <clears throat> known also as, also as the Pistonhead Cenobite. Well, <laughs> the only thing I'm going to say about this guy is that uh, each and every biography you can read of this guy online, it reads like a fucking self-advertisement. So don't check him out in any way. <laughs> Most likely he wrote it himself, like uh, uh, under a secret pen name. Most definitely. There was this username Anonymous, edited by uh, Terry Farrell. Terry Farrell actually plays Joanne, Joey, Summerskill, even though there is a Terry, the character, also in this film, just to confuse you a little bit. But Terry plays Joey and also played uh, Judgea Dax, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, in Star Trek Deep Space Nine for six seasons, even. She, she, she was a strong, strong woman. Also played Reggie in a comedy series called Becker of 94 she, episodes. She basically was the sexy science in Star Trek. Ooh. Then we have, of course, Tripping the Rift. One of those classic short films that nobody has seen. Okay, moving on. Paula Marshall, playing Terry, has been in a rom-com called That Old Feeling from 97. And other than that, I was not able to find anything like... She has been in several TV series and several aborted TV series after the pilot, and is married to Danny Nuzzi, one of these actors, you know. Well, she was was it for two seasons in Californication. Californication, which was relatively well received while it was running. I, I yeah. would say that the best known and most appreciated of, of her TV series catalog. Also, she is the sister of uh, Bob Marshall, this Virginian politician who happened to have some problems with uh, transgenders. And uh, he wanted to have limited transgender individuals' access to public restrooms. And uh, then that was defeated by a transgender candidate, by Danisa Roem. Well, Doc Bradley is, of course, back with, well, with worse makeup and lighting as Pinhead and Captain Spencer. Known also for playing Pinhead and Captain Spencer. Also Pinhead. That's actors on my part. Anything to add? No, nothing that, that, kind of a revel- uh, no, nothing that revelationary. Doc Bradley is, is the highlight, the big name of, of the film, and we have touched upon him already twice on this podcast so there's really not that much to say about Bradley's filmography anymore unless you have not listened to the first two episodes and you intend not to because Hellraiser 3 is your favorite Hellraiser movie at which point please leave the podcast (laughs) so watching the trailer I was surprised how it begins with uh, I believe Daniel LaFontaine giving his voice in Hellraiser 1. Really? Like, that's how, that's how you're going to start the trailer. Yeah. Rem- what is a Hellraiser 1? Re- reminding the audience about the good films. Yeah. And adding an unnecessary number at the end. So, why the fuck are there no effects on Pinhead's voice in this film? Or why is Bradley not using his deep voice? Like, everything seems off from the get-go. In the trailer and in the film. I really don't actually know what is the reasoning behind that, except my my guess, which would be the la- general laziness. Most likely, most likely. Hellraiser 3 
what's the point in in the franchise when when the franchise rights transferred to Dimension Films? Mm. And that's all you need to say. Yeah, Dimension being infamous for well, already back in the day, but most definitely today for Harvey Weinstein. And well, Dimension and horror never translated that well. Dimension and movies all together, more often than not, did not translate that well. Yeah. Because Weinstein's very authorital control over the finished product and a lot of kind of behind behind the scenes in the editing booth happening changes and script changes that, that Harvey was known for demanding. And that might be something that played into into how Hellraiser 3 shaped out to be. Because at, at this point point of, of history, Clark Parker and Tony Randall had had, had the plans for ma- ma- making yet another Hellraiser film. Like, there were background plans for Hellraiser 3. But unfortunately, the film ended up in quite the production hell. To a point where the original production company went bankrupt. And from that bankruptcy, Dimension acquired the rights for the franchise. And, well, even though Clive Parker is mentioned in the opening credits as an executive producer, he really was not in part with, with, with the finished film. Like, the product we have today is is Parker, executive producer, pretty much name only. And that's that, that about it. And I'm, I'm relatively sure that it is the lack of the oversight from the original heads of the franchise. Most definitely because Parker was not involved. That the film itself and the production itself was able to be quite damn lazy in many points. Like there is a lot of laziness that you see in Hellraiser Three when it comes to when it comes to effects, when it comes to camera work, when it comes to props. It's it's a very lazy movie all all together. Yeah, actually not as lazy as I remembered it. So that was kind of a positive surprise, if you can say that, watching this film. Oh, there's something. Would it be scene by scene? I I guess because I'm actually dying to know. What that is that you found from Hellraiser 3? So it's basically the overall tone of the film. I remember it being extremely dull in its mood through and throughout. As it is? As it is, but not as dull as maybe the sequels after this one. I guess we really do have to get to that scene by scene, because this is the moment when you really have to make your case. And uh, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram. Okay, bye. (laughs) Alright, so in first scene, we have an establishing shot of a city, and a gringo gets out of the car, lights a smoke, enters building. Yeah, the Pyramid Art Gallery, which is, from the atmosphere-wise, it is set up to be some kind of a secret, kind of an underground place, mysterious so- shop of forbidden wonders, so to say. And with, with TV movie vibes with tv movie vibes and basically all the art pieces being something that is just rather bad and unimaginable modern art and this is now supposed to be what do you call this thing again which is uh, swinging around it, it, it's supposed to be the 
the kind of a, the hell totem from the ending of the previous film. Mm, totem, that's a new word for it. I mean, it's been called a lot of things. But... Well, to, to be honest, I, I don't know what the hell that is supposed to be or what the hell was supposed to be the thing at the at the end of the last film. That that pole that ro- rose from the mattress, which already look, looked janky as hell in, in Hellbound, but somehow manages to look even more cheap on Hellraiser 3, even though the whole design has been remade. So the job owner seems to be a homeless guy. Seems like this, uh, or what appears to be a homeless guy, very like dirtily dressed and looking kind of out of out of place, actually. Not the kind of guy that you expect to run a gallery. This kind of felt is immediately sending me vibes of this dragon, homeless, uh, cockroach-eating dude from the first two films. Which you kind of are supposed to be thinking at the moment. Yeah, like that, that is the character you are su- you are supposed to be hearkening back when when you see the well quote and quote gallery owner because there is a huge plot twist later on in the film relating to the gallery. But very much the hobo here he's supposed to be if if not exactly the same character still very much similar type of character almost the same same dude that was the the dragon bomb in the original film before we get feedback from the listeners that it wasn't cockroaches that he was eating it was something else yeah well i think it was grasshoppers but whatever yeah it was it was grasshoppers yeah but but we are not sorry because there's not enough listeners following this podcast to actually come to haunt us with those remarks. Fear not, I will create some kind of a scandal around this podcast, so we'll, we will get more listeners. Well, well, the last ca- scandal only only got us Facebook comments. So <laughs> good luck with that. Even bad publicity is publicity. <laughs> All right. With regards, Harvey Weinstein. Oh, we got feedback from that. No, we haven't got gotten feedback about Harvey Weinstein. At this point, throwing rocks at Harvey Weinstein just automatically earns you good guy points. But but you can't make the argument. You, are, you honest to God, you can't make the argument that Harvey Weinstein isn't a person who at the, who today is is not enjoying his fair share of bad publicity. Yeah, there is not enough lawyers in the world to <laughs> yeah, start suing us and everybody else. There's a really pissed off TV host. She doesn't get good scoops. And this is Joey. And there is this money shot cameraman who leaves to take care of a more important story. And they are in a hospital. So they start walking. Uh, she starts walking on the hospital corridors and uh, sees a guy in chains who appears. He's delivered into an operation room. And this guy has something to do with a girl who also happens to be at the hospital. And that's, that also has something to do with the boiler room. But fear not, our listeners, because this guy's head explodes and breaks Hellraiser rules, if you want to dig into that. Pretty much, yeah. But then again, this, this, is, this is the film that makes the knowing point of throwing the previous established rules of the franchise out of the window. So the next thing, I guess, would be the meeting at the TV station, where there is the comment of no pictures, no story. This is te- television. The round around when when Joey is t- telling about the previous night's horrible death at the hospital. 
Yeah, and even before that, there is an extremely useless scene where Joey is seen on a bus and some random guy smashes the window randomly. Random jump scare, no point at all. And then there is a scene of anchor woman at her workplace, and this one guy is demanding tight skirts, but she doesn't agree. Yeah. So the whole argument goes that, that Joey just made the remark that if if she would show more skin on camera, she would get better scoops. And Joey remarks back that she wants to do it the quote-unquote right way. Yeah, tight stories, not tight skirts. And the lead she wants to follow, which is the death at the hospital, is kind of a. It's not recorded since cameraman was no longer with Joey at the hospital, and therefore there is no there is no footage about what happened. EA, mm. no pictures, no story, because no one can reach for the doctors or the nurses who were in the same room as. At the time when when the poor dude lost his life and could elaborate more on what happened the previous night, because apparently nobody in 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 this news station is a reporter in any way. Ooh, spooky! So she goes to a club which has a very bland lighting. And overall, overall, this is the the club she goes to is is the films quote-unquote legendary boiler room club, which is supposed to be some kind of a half-secret, se- half but at the same time, the go-to place of, well, basically everybody. And it's it's supposed to be the hottest in the club scene. Is this the same club that is shown later? Because the first club that she goes to, she goes to ask for Terry or JP and... Uh, then proceeds to go to this fancy restaurant, which is, I guess, connected to this club. It is connected to the club. Okay. Physically, like, it's in the same <laughs> space with the goddamn club. Yeah, a bit confusing, I have to say, mood-wise. It is, it is. Uh, and also very much in, in logic-wise. Like, th- this is what I meant when I said that, that the boiler room is supposed to be secretive underground club. Because Joey has to constantly ask what is boiler room, and like she doesn't have the pre-knowledge of the club, and th- therefore the club is a little secretive. Also, it's it's placed in some dark back alley, apparently, as as we see from the the outdoor shots of the club premises. But at the same time, it is the club that is visited basically by everybody because it it draws in huge crowds of, of, well, I don't know what alternative culture members they are supposed to be in the film, because the the nightclub side of the boiler room is a mess. But on top of the the club covers, it is also supposed to to draw in the rich elite, which would be the customer base that goes into the fancy restaurant side of the club. Fancy or not. The owner is not very fancy, and everybody is acting like pigs. At least JP. JP is now talking with the Joey, and uh, makes the case to him that I don't think I'm your type. I'm out of grade school, and that that's a fair point. Like, who can ever be around this kind of a guy? Nobody knows. If you take the scene and the, and the shot about JP and 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 his table. 
where apparently fucking everybody once again. Yep. Because the dude dude does command a huge crowd, and as we see in the scene, he he commands members from from the both social classes. Like in his table, there are leather jacket wearing. Once again, I'm guessing they are supposed to be the alternative culture group, but also members of of the rich elite. This very posh model type ladies yeah. and you, you can you can kind of see see the theme that is being set here or like or, or the themes like joey being depending on your reading on on or, or jp being depending on your reading or on of the character either a, a man who can exist on both social classes kind of both realities he can simultaneously be the alternative culture group leader but also the a member of the rich elite or you can take him as someone who mainly is a is a douche punk belonging to the alternative culture group but he fancies himself as someone who can also play off as the member of the rich elite and on top of that there is also the ri- whole rich elite salaming with, with the alternatives theme going on. The, the restaurant and the club exist on the same space so that the rich elite can... Technically, they can say that they go to the boiler room and they, they can say that they have been in this place with, with this alternative culture group, but at the same time, they can stay on the fancy restaurant side where the, the classical music is being played and because of this, they don't really have to leave the, the bubble of their own comfort zone. They can go to the boiler room, but still listen to the classical music and don't have to listen to the kind of a soft hair metal that is being played on the quote-unquote hard-edge club side. You can also take an alternative reading and read that JP is the CEO of Dimension Films. <laughs> Well, well, you can uh, you can really see some parallel. After this uh, little meeting, we have the first war dream of Joey's. Lots of deaths, very uninspiring, very boring war scenes, actually, because at least when you come to this second or third dream of this kind, you notice that there is not really a structure in, in these dreams. It's just people shooting people. There is no high point. And it's actually later on really, really funny because nothing is happening. She's just in the middle of it. And then somebody gets a bullet into their head and there's a huge hole in there. And then she's like, ah, and wakes up. Doesn't make it, any it, sense. It, essentially, it is the William Dafoe death scene from Platoon. Is it? Except made really, really, really cheap. But in in many ways, in many ways, the way how the scene is played out, how the way how it's shown, what is happening, it is is it bears a close resemblance to to the scene in Platoon. Maybe they should have done a hellocalypse now. Maybe not this, with these skills. Okay, Joanne Summerskill, Joey, she answers the call. Terry is calling. Boyfriend threw threw her out, so she invites Terry in. And she acts like a total asshole, really, as far as I can tell. Like she would own the place. 
even worse in my opinion because she has already some experience living in other people's places and quarters and she doesn't know how to behave what what do you mean she doesn't know how to behave she comes into a strange person's apartment and immediately spills out her entire characterization yep by sitting and uh, going everywhere in the room like she would own the place yeah yeah yeah. but she's curious to see how people who can actually see dreams decorate their apartments oh that was so awkward moment like (laughs) let let me tell you about this dream of mine where my father dies that's fucking awesome that is so awesome you see your father dying. How cool is that? Yeah, yeah. I don't see I don't see any dreams, so I think it's cool and nice talking. Girls night out and uh, all that and a good coffee and ah, <laughs> oh. yeah. There, there your first smoke. It's from boiler room, of course. And then she's like, "Oh, you want to know about that place? Oh, that's definitely not the place that you want to know more about, and that's definitely not the reason why I'm here." So, no, I don't want to talk about it. Please, no, no, no. Yeah, especially since Joey's interest in Terry originally has been shown to be coming precisely because Terry was involved with the dude who got murdered at at the hospital in the beginning of the film. Yeah, and the way she comes really defensive about the subject matter doesn't really make even any fucking sense to me. Once again, it, it's the laziness of the film. Like, this is the moment moment in movie that's supposed to happen after the two characters have bonded a bit. Like, mm. after there is this perceived friendship between the two. And this is supposed to be the kind of a, kind of a questioning mark moment of that friendship when you are reminded that that one side of that that friendship has actual job that also ties into the into this situation how much joey is being a friend to terry simply because she wants to get the school because she wants to get the next lead to follow her big story and that, that like that is what the what the scene is supposed to give to you but it doesn't come off very strong it doesn't really work because because this question mark moment happens in the very first scene that the two really share together. And I'm quite confused about the moment when Kirsty Cotton reappears in this franchise and it's actually Ashley Lawrence doing the acting job. So why not just use her more? Why just have a videotape? Like, what what kind of a deal is that? Like, usually actors, when they get sick of a franchise, they just leave and don't make some special appearances. Yeah, kind of like it, it was with Claire Higgins, who played Julia Julia in the previous two films, and was originally meant to become the the main antagonist of the franchise instead, instead of Pinhead. But once again, and this is something that harkens back into the production hell phase of Hellraiser 3, Claire Higgins refused to return to the role yeah. when, when Hellraiser 3 was, was underworks. Totally understandable. Um, kind of, yeah, yeah, but and it, it it wasn't so much disdain towards the franchise itself or, or Hellraiser movies. It was just a time to move on. It, it 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 was it was for her. It was time to move on. It was a scheduling issues, and it also was that as an old dramatic actor, Claire Higgins wanted once again spread her wings. 
with something a bit more Shakespeare and something that is not so violent and not so dark as the first two Hellraiser films. And that all kind of came together with her not returning for Hellraiser 3 when the film was under under development or in, in the pre-preparation phase. And because she didn't return, that of course also fed into the original Hellraiser 3 ending up in the production hell, which led into the bankruptcy and dimension films and, well, the film we are looking at today. Yeah, this was the point also what we were talking about Terry and Joey discussing inside the flat, that Terry shows the box that she mysteriously has in her possession, which she got from the guy, and then nobody knows, I guess, how the guy who got ripped off permanently had it, because Kirsty Cotton had it the last, as far as we know. But that's not important, really. The, the, the plot structure the film tries to insinuate is, and, and this is kind of like, you have to look at individual frames really carefully to actually be, to get, get these, these visual clues of what has happened, it is that the dude who dies at the hospital in the beginning of the film, for some odd reason, he has... Taken the box out of the hell totem, the mysterious pillar that, that J.P. Monroe has yeah, in, but, in his flat. But this pillar totem then had it? Okay. Yeah, it, it, it does have it. It, it, is, it, is tied, it is implanted on one side of the pillar. You see it very quickly in one scene. And now that Terry is yeah. holding out the box, you can actually see some remnants of concrete. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the, the sides of the box. But yeah. that being out of the way, the dude actually acquiring or stealing the box for himself doesn't quite make any goddamn sense because, the, well, the pillar does come to alive later on in the film. But at this point in time, it still is just that. It's just a, a concrete pillar. Therefore, Pinhead himself does not yet have his manipulative powers, and he hasn't been able to, to instruct the dude to remove the box from the pillar. Hmm. So why the hell would the dude see go through all the trouble of actually hacking uh, this one box out of the concrete pillar? Especially since it has, it was actually pushed pretty deep into the pillar. Like it, it, it wasn't just that there's one corner and holding from there. It was like three fourths of the box it was inside of the concrete pillar. So some serious damage to the pillar had to be done for the dude to remove the box. I have an explanation for everything that is happening regarding the lazy continuation. The reason is that they wrote the lazy continuation. Congrats, crew. Or, or then, within the pillar, there also was embedded also the script, and the dude managed to read a couple of pages and knew what he had to do. How many times have you seen this film? Probably too many times. Uh, like four times before this one. This would be my fifth. Oh dear. I feel ya. But Henrik, the statue or pillar or totem starts making noises and there is a rat inside which of course eats a bunch of J.P. Morgan's hand and of course the blood spills all over the statue and of course everything is okay after that. Yeah, this being one of the one of the 
most ham-fisted. Well, well, one of the callbacks to the original film. There are a couple that happen yeah. throughout the movie, and like you mentioned, they really are pretty damn ham-fisted. The rat it's, it, itself and the oceans of blood that spur out out of Monroe's hand. That that's actually when you see it, like when you see it play out, it's quite forced. And when it comes to taking taking famous quotes from the first film, that also that that goes directly into the ham-fisted territory, followed by natural reaction from the guy. Whoa! I just got bitten by a rat, and this statue is doing some weird shit, and I should run for my life, but... Whoa! Cooking at girls' flat. So Terry is making some crazy breakfast, about to burn down the house, like kitchen virgin. Somehow, as a poor person. Yeah, she, she, she's, she's making a gas chamber inside the apartment. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, Joey comes to save the day. No, no, I, I like boiling water. It's a specialty of mine. And she tells that JP likes statues, and he bought this statue. So naturally, they're now now going. We're going shopping. They're going shopping into the pyramid gallery, which is closed. And always was because the owner is somewhere far away, according to this random guy. Yeah, has been closed at least for a month or two months because yeah. the owner owner is taking holiday in some place. And this is the epic plot twist concerning the gallery that. I mentioned earlier. I don't like it. This, this is the reason precisely which give you the impression that the that the homeless bum gallery owner dude from the very opening shots of the film was supposed really supposed to be the the dragon bum character <laughs> or something similar to that character from the first film. Yeah, I just don't like the fact that these events are suggested to have never actually happened or it was happening in some kind of a other reality, whereas, at least according to my knowledge, the stuff that happens in the real world in Hellraiser 1 and Hellraiser 2 actually happened. There were just no other people around to witness that. My take uh, on the subject was that... Uh, that uh... The bomb gallery owner who was taking orders from hell, even though that doesn't make any sense, since being here they still embedded into that goddamn totem or pillar, would have somehow broken into the gallery and and presented himself as the gallery owner to try to try to con some poor sword to take the mysterious pillar for himself, and and that also once again goes. White hardly against the themes of the previous films and the themes of the original novel. Because the original conceit was that to get your hands into the box, you really had to want, like you had to have the desire to, to yeah. fi- find and open the box. Frank had to go to the world's in, in based on some rumor that he once heard and hunt down the box before he was able to acquire it and to start to toy with it. And in in here, in, in Hell on Earth, it is a, like a huge con. The, the messengers of Hell, they present themselves as gallery owners in closed-down galleries, trying to sell you the next equivalent of the box. 
So it it becomes being being a trickster and being a snake oil salesman, and that's kind of a feels really desperate on Hell's End. Yeah, you have a horror universe established with the first and the second Hellraisers, and then you kind of start poking holes into the whole mythos, the universe, by creating Hellraiser three, where you have lazy writing that you are going to probably justify as just making this film more complicated than it actually is, so that there would be something to chew on when you leave the theater or leave your room or throw it out of your window. Or In any case... I, I kind of count these problems into the notion that was made in the previous episodes, that Hellraiser in itself, like the core concept of Hellraiser is, is of such that it lends itself extremely poorly to a franchise or, or yeah. to a sequel. And th- this is kind of a problem you you have seen in any format that tries to continue Hellraiser past the past second film. Actually, there are very few horror franchises or films that can pull off a successful franchise quality-wise. And you can't really talk about quality when you're talking about something like Friday the 13th. But the reason that they are able to pull that off, because it's uh, kind of a tongue-in-cheek from the beginning. There's also the fact that those films, one way or the other, they manage to to insert a motif into their bad guy. And because there is a mm. motif concerning the bad guy, the bad guy can actually return. Freddy Krueger can want revenge for his horrible murder at the hand of the vigilante mob. And because of that, he is always willing to return. Jason Voorhees wants revenge, I guess, for his own death, I, I guess. Guess. And b- because of that, he's always willing to return. Michael Meyer, from the second film film onwards, wants to kill his family members, wants to end his bloodline. And because of that, he's always willing to return. And that kind yeah. of lends the, the franchise construction some longevity. There is a reason why the bad guy comes back. And as, so, as long as the bad guy is willing to come back, you can always make the next film. And that is kind of the, the direction that Hell on Earth, Hellraiser 3, tries to take. And it tries to push the franchise into that direction. It tries to make Pinhead more of a character on his own, it tries to give him a motive, and and it tries to do this just so that Dimension can keep pushing out Hellraiser films one after another and build a franchise. Most definitely, this is some kind of a conscious decision that this this is going to be the way that we are going to milk the crowd for the next twenty five years, like releasing the guy from the box, releasing this you know, dualism from the original plotline. Yep. But that's also, there's a problem that actually, in, in my opinion, no one associated with the franchise or, or Hellraiser brand altogether has ever been able to properly solve after the second film. And even with the second film, the, the seams have already started to show. It didn't fail. It, it still managed, managed to hold true to the original concepts and original ideas. But you were kind of already on tricky water with Hellbound. It, it was a juggling act. 
like dancing on on Razor's Edge. You you they, you yeah. the film would have taken one wrong step too many and it would have fall flat on its face. It just miraculously it happened to have enough grace to pull it off. But but when it comes to the films, nobody has been able to continue Hellraiser the brand, the franchise and stay true to the original concepts. When it comes to the comic books, the comic lineups, uh, they too haven't really been able to... They too have been trying to kind of a, somehow find a way to, to, to have a piece with the original concepts and still be able to produce Hellraiser comics. The first lineup of, of Hellraiser comics, which was Marvel's epic lineup, Try to solve this to, uh, this problem basically in in two ways. The first one was that they were mostly anthology comics, which actually didn't even feature Pinhead that much. Pinhead usually was just a, a character that was in in the cover of of a comic book, but he did did not appear in the stories. The uh, stories were owned to different. Xenobites not previously seen in the films, and they were all individual stories. Later on, the other route that Marvel tried to take was that they once again they invented their own Xenobites, and then they tried to have a long-running backstory with those Xenobites. Like it, it became this mix. There's the Marvel's Xenobites who kind of have this long-running arc with them. And then they very often they would uh, kind of a crisscross between the anthology story structure, and that that was kind of a hot mess on its own right. But that was still a relatively honest attempt to stay true to the concepts and and not mess with Pinhead or, or the basic themes of Hellraiser too much, and still give you more Hellraiser. The now running comic line, which is actually Clive Barker back in the helm, in my opinion, kind of falls back into the same trap as as does the film franchise. That it it too tries to once again it tries to build itself around Pinhead and it tries to make Pinhead more of a character, give him motive, and this once again it actually makes the same mistake more or less as as the film does. Where a the concept of of Hellraiser's hell being this alternate dimension that just is so weird that the human mind can can comprehend it and in lack of better word it calls it hell that goes more or less out of the way and the Christian hell imagery becomes more prominent and with just with, with that comes the the typical problems tied with with Christian hell like the concept of heaven and all those possibilities, and also the fact that Christian hell is not, as a concept, it's not as interesting as would be the would be simply the other dimension that just is too alien for a human mind. And another problem that they run across is that once again, Pinhead becomes more or less a bad guy, an evil person, and through that more or less just a slasher villain. Were they to someday successfully, or at least gracefully, 
reboot the franchise, I think they should do it completely without pinhead of any kind. And they could return to the themes of, of the hell, even though it would not be that interesting, as you said, Christian hell. But maybe with enough creativity, you could create something, some kind of a new monster to the mythos. And maybe something that is less like a cartoon characters, what we basically have in the original. Well, there have been attempts to do this. The most prominent one was the 2008 attempt to reboot the franchise this time. Pascal Logier, the director of, of Martyrs, was tied to be the director of, of the reboot, and nothing ever came to that. Like It, it never got, got past the pre-production phase, but what the little info leaked out, I came to understand that Pascal's Vision was supposed to be somehow reinventing the franchise. It was still going to keep Pinhead in a way with the franchise. Like there was there was a character called Pinhead, but all the designs and everything that I ever heard about the character sounded comp- completely different from from Doug Doug Bradley's version. Like that was supposed to be a different type of Pinhead and very much a different type of Hellraiser film. Later on, was it two, three, or three years ago, there was there was a fan-made concept trailer, Hellraiser Origins, which was made in order to to hype the possibility of of taking that concept trailer and turning it into a feature film with a proper budget. That didn't go through because the production company did not take interest enough on the trailer in, in and instead of just to let the franchise stay quiet for a while. But but in, in those concepts, it was supposed to kind of uh, take place before the films, I, I, even at the, at the time of early years of mankind. And there was supposed to be some kind of a proto-pinhead, like once again pinhead-esque character, but not really Doc Bradley's pinhead. Okay. So th- th- there have been ideas and there have been attempts to kind of a, to really reboot the franchise and try to find a new ways to tackle tackle with, with what Hellraiser is supposed to be. But un- unfortunately, those attempts have never actually come into fruition. When it comes to the remake, it's actually been in, as you said, kind of in a limbo and uh, according to the latest information that i have david s goyer is going to write now the film that is actually going to come out at some point at least it's starting to actually sound something like that it's starting to get into motion with spike class entertainment some kind of a reimagining that would be coming in the following years well so. it, it it could be interesting David S. Goyer, as a as a writer, is is kind of a gamble. Like he he has made films I I personally have liked. Like for example, the first Blade movie, which I I, mm. I I like more than maybe maybe some people, maybe the most. And well, he he was was he he did write uh, Christopher Nolan Batman films. At, at least Batman Begins. But that, that, in in that case, Goyer did have Nolan behind his back, 
supervising what he was doing. So there was that that the level of control, kind of a forcing Goyer to go into a, into a specific direction. When Goyer is being left on his own devices, like I said, it's it's a gamble. Sometimes you may get something that really works, like 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 Blade, and other times Goyer's scripts really are pretty bad. Either way, looks like we're once again doing a timely look at a franchise other than Bond, because there's actually now a reason to look at Hellraiser if this is true that it's coming out. Haha. <laughs> well, let's just let, let's just first see if 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 this reboot or reimagining actually comes true at any point. Because yeah. the but the past history with with re, reboots and reimaginings is like mentioned, it's really bad. Like it, it's a bunch of attempts that never go to anywhere. Yeah. So in Hellraiser 3, of course they find a back door to this gallery. And they find the blueprints of the box. It also turns out that the gallery owner himself was apparently a scam. Since he made profitable and legitimate business. And of course there is a back door when you need one. Well... Guess that explains the breaking skills of hers that she has not been exactly having a stable life. And is better at breaking doors than cooking. We're back at the club. Back at the club. Wondering how this wanker can hold on to any club or own any club. But owns a club nevertheless. And goes to play games with this pretty girl. It will be established that I, I guess it's because of the mummy and daddy's monies. Was it there? Okay. Well, it's it's never mentioned outright, but Pinhead does make later on in the film. Pinhead makes the notion that JP has killed his parents. True, because, true. Because of the wealth that they commandeered. True, true. JP has sex with the girl, and Pinhead first time opens his. Eyes inside the totem, the pillar, to get a sneak peek of the action. And it looks goofy as all hell. Hmm? Cartoon. And overall, overall, the whole pillar prop, or pinhead in the pillar, it looks really cheap. And this is something that I, I haven't been able to completely rest my mind around. Like, how, how this actually managed to happen, because... As we remember from the previous film, from Hellbound, the pillar at the end of the film, it, it does look also quite cheap. There's a, there's, a, there's a goddamn plastic skeletons in it, humping each other. Like, that is the level of cheap. And you can very clearly see that the pillar was being redesigned to, to avoid the shadow of what we saw in Hellbound. To, to make it now somehow... More grandiose and cooler and more intimidating. It's it's not, though. It's not, though. It's just a different kind of foolish totem. It is. It is. It, it's, it's a different type of foolish totem. And when it comes to Pinhead himself, or Pinhead's face, which is the active moving part of the, of the pillar, it actually looks even worse than it do- did in, in Hellbound. Like, this one looks more cheap. The prop itself, the prop itself does look like more money was put into it. But Pinhead's face, which is the, 
the focal point of audience's perception of the pillar. The one thing that is actually moving part in the pillar, the one thing that gives you Pinhead's dialogue as long as he, he is tied into the pillar, and the one thing that is mostly cut into and given extreme close-ups from the pillar's design, that actually looks way cheaper than it did in, in Hellbound. Mm-hmm. And I can't figure out how the hell this was actually possibility like how did they manage this they of course had very low budget in the original too and it was forgiven mostly because of that that the effects were cheap and also because it was the 80s now we are in 92 the owner has changed we have less ways to 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 accept this level of effects especially when they're worse yep and and that that is that, that is the thing that is most mysterious to me about the pillar. They want to go to Shannard Video Archives. So Joey wants the Kirsty Cotton tape, and that's what she gets. And J.P. Monroe becomes even more of an asshole. The woman freaks out who is in the vicinity, and Pinhead kills the lady. Which also looks stupid. And even more cheap than it did in in the previous film. Yeah. So there's a, there's a, what we have in in here is is a woman being skinned alive and then sucked into the pillar. And the skinning looks even more cheap than it did in the first film. Hellraiser, the original Hellraiser, even that film, and and it was done with even less money and even even more ways back had more realistic skinned corpses than the 1992 Hellraiser 3. And don't let me even get started on the effect that they used when when the lady is being sucked inside of the pillar. Oh, Because that, that somehow makes it to be even more cheap than the moment when she's been skinned. And that effect was precisely what I would have been commenting on next, because it looks like something very cheap of a Photoshop smudge effect, kind of like uh, uh, in a stop motion fashion. Kinda like I I don't know how they actually did the effect. Like, mm. What what was being used? It's very obvious that that it is somehow done with the early nineties CGI. Mm. It looks like it's a photo of the woman in one position, maybe in a moving position, and then they kind of. I don't know, they, they smudge or push and bend that same image to make it look like it's going inside the statue when in fact they are just cutting the image in front of the statue, which looks silly as fuck. Could be, could be, now that you mention it. That could very much be how it was done. But, but, but whatever the case, this is a classroom example of, of precisely how not to make this effect. Yeah. I don't think this movie deserves more attention at this particular point, except the Jesus Christ. Not quite. Did you like that? Yeah, it it, it was okay, but it was yeah. not as good as as Hellraiser Force in God's name. Do I look oh. like so- someone who cares what God thinks? Oh. Basically, very much the same same tone. That's kind of the same line. Just written differently and more effectively. It could also be from the Daniel Craig James Bond movies. 
Vodka martini, shaken, not stirred. Do I look like I give a damn? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Lady's dead, and they both apparently enjoyed the girl. There's the story about JP killing his parents with the gun. Uh, Pinhead is invincible, he sucks the bullets. Yeah, the bullets go somehow inside the pillar, and Pinhead just spits them out. Of course. Which also looks stupid. Like it's it's unintentionally hilarious moment in the film. Flesh power, dominion, and other smart sounding dialogue that Pinhead is spewing here. Pinhead, of course, gets the best lines of the film. Lady now <clears throat> gets something for his story in a postage bag, and that is the tape. As the hippie guy is or what looks like a hippie guy now gives this tape to Joey. They watched the Kirsty Gotton interrogation tape as rambling as she has as her as her statements before, really. Then Joey sees a vision of Pinhead as human, and uh, this quote is is played back. She's telling the truth, Joey. We get to the goofy section of the film even deeper. Terry happens to be reading Battles of the Twentieth Century book. I thought that was kind of sweet, like in those days you were not able to go to your smartphone to browse Facebook. You might accidentally read something smart. So, of course, I don't know what's happening exactly, but the Terry is being pulled in by this box, or it's making some goofy noise and she doesn't care, even though it's making this goofy noise. And she doesn't care that this box might be in some way related to the accident that happened to her friend before, those chains and shit. Yeah, which is something that of which Terry is supposed to actually be acknowledgeable of. Mm-hmm. Now JP calls Terry, somehow has the number, and uh, tries to coax her now into his quarters to get killed by Pinhead. It's pretty embarrassing to watch the whole scene, which follows at the flat, or kind of embarrassing as well that she would even go to the flat in the first place. It is, and it's it's kind of uncomprehensible why JP sees this much trouble to specifically get Terry. Yeah, why? Why did did you did you hate Terry that much? Like, couldn't you pick up all these random girls from the bar or in the vicinity? Because uh, right after Terry hangs up with with JP, like JP calls Terry. To, to ask her come back to him, to his flat, and Terry hangs up the phone. Right after that, the phone rings for the second time. Mm-hmm. And this time, I'm guessing it's Pinhead who phones Terry and pretends to be this, this TV station manager dude who is trying to contact Joey to tell her that she's going to... Where was it? Honduras? Monterey. Monterey, precisely. And, well, that obviously is not true. Like, that that is a fake phone call. And that kind of, like, putting that level of effort and and getting Pinhead himself involved in the proceedings uh, kind of, once again, begins the question, what is so special about Terry, except the fact that you are going to need a female Cenobite for the end of the film. But other than that, like plot-wise, why is Terry so important? Because JP, as a character, it has been highlighted time and time, and time again that 
he is someone who sleeps with a woman for a moment and then completely disregards her. He he doesn't oh, create totally. any kind of a real emotion, any kind of a real feeling. He even even hate or envy or any of these feelings towards the members of female sex. So once again, why is Teresa so important? I was wondering why it was so important that Joey might or might not be going to Monterey. So who cares? There is there just for some nights. She's not in not not responsible for. Or was Monterey somehow related to some place that she should not go? Or I I didn't fucking get it. What's no, the big deal? The, the big deal is once again hearkening back to the friendship angle. Oh like, my god! Terry is is feels his. She's Terry feels she's losing her friend, and this is this is this is the at least at this point of the film, some attempts to build a friendship has been made in in the movie. Like they have had they have had some scenes together. Yeah, doesn't work. It doesn't work. No, just makes her look kind of psychotic. It does, but then again, Pinhead's entire plan throughout the film kind of hangs on the people coming in contact with the pillar being somehow mentally challenged. Mm, yeah. Well, we get back to the club. Pinhead's plan is not exactly working out just yet. But now that it doesn't, then he doesn't get Terry right away. He's babbling about there are two keys in this room. The one is to my great pleasure key and then there is the key room of the actual room which she is in and uh, somehow i don't know what the hell actually kind of happens because obviously jp is still alive and could go with go on with this plan and given that pinhead has like as he says centuries of time to reap his pleasures or their pleasures Why not wait for five minutes to wait for JP to come back to see that uh, JP stands up because what Pinhead is doing here he's just changing sides just like just like that. Yup, he's he's betraying JP and now coaxing Terry to to sacrifice JP to him. Mm-hmm. And I I kind of like what what the film is is is. Well, trying to do here. The film is presenting Pinhead as this Luciferian character who tempts you to do his bidding. And like, if if you must have an evil Pinhead, that's not necessarily a bad take. It, it is much more interesting bad Pinhead than what we get soon after for the rest of the film. And if you look carefully, it seems that in this spinning rotating totem you have something that very much looks like disney's hunchback of the notre dame oh i i didn't catch that however pinhead now gets jp and can't wait to get out of this totem so he does get out of it and offers his hand for terry which means that at this point she's going to probably die well she does get turned into a proto-xenobite, so I don't know what happens because the xenobites get get back into the game or they people become xenobites in, in the course of five minutes. Real yeah. wor- wor- world time. But w- w- once again, 
like like mentioned, Pinhead's whole plan of getting out of out of the pillar hinges on everybody coming to contact with the pillar being mentally challenged. Because the kind of a, this mental and emotional anguish of these characters is not is really established. For example, w- w- the case with with Terry, Pinhead basically wins Terry over. To join him by promising Terry the possibility that she will finally have the ability to dream. Her not being able to see dreams is something that has been mentioned once previously in the film. So you know that she that that is something that that she wished she would have. But the film is lacking the scenes that would really show how desperate Terry is to see dreams. Like, how it now plays here, it's just... Terry notices that there is an evil pillar that eats people, and the pillar immediately goes like, Hey girl, help me out, and you can have dreams. And Terry is immediately on board with this. Mm. So there's, there's a lot of... The, there's a the friendship, and there is the people being tempted by Pinhead, uh, both which are something that would have actually... It, it, it would have helped those themes had there been a couple of more scenes showing the friendship building up and showing how exactly desperate these characters are. Good point. Something that seems a little bit desperate to me is the fact that we are now playing with two realities out of our own. Well, we have the hell, and then we have the reality, whatever it is, where this uh, Spencer is spending time in this ghost reality. Yeah, Spencer's ghost reality, which finally breaks through and comes into real life, kind of, <sighs> sort of. Like, like yeah. previously, ghost Spencer, who now on the later half of becomes a major character on his own right, he has appeared in, in what, one soundbite and quickly on that videotape. Like, giving one word. And now he actually comes as a prominent character. I remember when I was having probably my first Night of the Horrors, this uh, horror movie event that I had for friends and family. And we would have one night only for Hellraiser and only for Nightmare on Elm Street and only for Scream or something like that. You know, kids. And we had like some kind of a US DVD releases of all the Hellraisers, so they didn't have any subtitles. And my audience average age was something like 12 years old. So yeah. And me myself still not speaking very fluent English. And then watching this TV and this sound quality probably not being the best. And it kind of echoing in the big room. And you trying to follow a film which looks very bland, sounds very bland. And you can't hear what the fuck the characters are speaking about. That's my biggest memory from, from the Hellraiser series. Not understanding what the fuck is going on. And that continued from 3 to 4 to 5 to, I guess, 6 at that time. And I fell asleep somewhere in between. But Joey wakes up on the bed. Something is playing on TV. She goes to the closet and there's an old radio playing tunes. Sounding kind of half of the time awfully modern in the sound quality. And half of the time (laughs) extremely ancient. That confused me. Until you see the radio and you're like, oh, this is bad audio editing. So a sound says that go to the window, Joey, and go to the window. And of course, yeah, 
why not? Let's go through the window and uh, in a worst case scenario I will fall off this building. But no, it's an alternative, alternative reality and she's pestering this guy, Spencer, sitting there just doing nothing. Now say something because I did this stupid thing and I'm in your reality that doesn't make any sense. Further proven by the moment that this moves on from this scene to, to the fields once again. So basically this in-between scene with Spencer with the box doing nothing on the floor doesn't really provide us anything, especially if you have seen the previous two movies. Well, it, it does give, give Hellraiser 3 the possibility to reuse footage from Hellraiser 2. The, that is always one option. If, if your script or your film is not strong enough, just steal from the old ones. It, it, it's one of the clever co- callbacks to the previous films that, that Hellraiser 3 does. Much like it was also the completely wasted J.P. Monroe's Come to Daddy, which was stolen from Frank from Hellraiser 1. Yeah, and somehow now this evil edition of Spencer, this pinhead is roaming the streets of our reality, completely as his own full entity. And the only way to stop this guy is to fuck around with the box once again. So, so the core conceit with, with Pinhead in, in Hellraiser 3 is that the Pinhead you saw you had in the previous films was a combination of, of the soul of a human, mm-hmm. Elliot Spencer, and some kind of a hell demon. And when when Pinhead was kind of a killed of in Hellbound, that separated the bond between the two. And now there is two different entities. There is the ghost, Elliot Spencer, who is who is a good guy ghost. And then there is Binhead, which is the pure evil or the demonic. And the demonic is now wreaking havoc in... Is this supposed to be in New York? Or where the hell we are? The, the unspecific yeah. American city. But then there is the problem, or maybe I missed something. Uh, like So now there is this uh, Spencer, the actual kind of original version of Spencer, and then this hellish version of Spencer. But the problem is, how is this kind of original Spencer, as a, as a ghost Spencer, able to control the box? How is he related to box at this moment when he's in his own ghostly kind of serene reality somewhere else. I, I took it that that is a, just some time-stop foolery that just happens in Ghost Spe- Spencer's ghost dimension because it's it's weird and therefore it, it's, it's spooky. And thank you for confirming my assumption. But there is baby BDSM at this moment in the bar. Yeah, there's a baby hanging there, kind of a baby sculpture or something, and there's some leather stuff around the baby. It's it's very obviously it's a plastic toy baby. Well, baby, nevertheless. And and somebody ha- has wrapped uh, some leather around it, and yeah. it it can't be nothing else except plastic toy baby because it's an it's an official decorative element of the Hellfire Club, so it. Most definitely, unlike in, in Hellbound, it can't be any kind of a presentation of a real baby. That is, a, that is a toy. Toy baby, even in the movie's universe. Sure, sure. I didn't uh, insinuate anything else. 
No, no, uh, uh, of course not. But that also kind of a, it, it works as as a stable on exactly how cheaply and how badly the alternative culture goth club was actually perceived in 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 Hellraiser three. Like like this is supposed to be the edgy club which plays the hard edge music, which is pretty soft nineties hair metal. Yeah. And it's supposed to have the edgy decoration for the edgy people. And that is a plastic toy baby that has some leather wrapped around it. Not a fan of leather babies. I kind of can't see who could actually want to go to this club. Because the club, the music, the decoration, everything in the club just screams lame. Like, I, I've seen more edgy stuff even in the local bar. I know one edgier bar. It's in the center of Warsaw. It's like a combination of small little bars. You go into this area and in one corner there is the first bar where I went with my then flatmate. It was kind of our meeting place. Uh, Me and her friends. And on the walls of this bar you have tits and dicks hanging from the ceiling. As part of the ceiling. I, I, I have to I have to tell you that that also sounds pretty lame. But like maybe uh, that bar could join forces with JP Monroe's hip and cool underground nightclub. And then they together they could be super edgy and super lame. Only Pinhead was missing from this picture. <laughs> he could be right at home there. You know what's even lamer though, or more lame, if that's grammatically more correct? I had my my 30th birthday there. Now, why did why on earth did you do a stupid thing like that? Like, what, 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 what was it at the time the only bar in Warsaw? <laughs> it was probably the only bar in Warsaw that I thought could make an, an an effect an effect for any visitors from outside countries. So, good going. <laughs> Oh my god! Like I, I, I can, I can believe that the only person who that could make an effect would be your mom. When are you coming to Warsaw, Henrik? <laughs> Fuck you! I'm, I, 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 I'm staying, staying far away from your lame dick park. <laughs> okay. Don't forget the tits. Equality. Well, equally lame. Equally lame. <laughs> Just. Purely hanging bunch of teeth on your wall. Eh. So you, you can just, you know, get out of the business right away. Let's get back to the leather babies on the wall. Yeah, so we get to the most infamous scene of the film, I believe, where Pinhead is now completely losing our reality and is killing all the people in the bar with the following mantra, shall we begin? And, of course, this is something that did not happen in the first films. Oh, well, is this now then saying that, okay, well, this is not saying actually jack shit, because this is some kind of a separate invention outside of the first two films, but let's make this, let's make this proposition. We have Pinhead, who has been kind of the slave of hell, and the only way that he can, in the Leviathan's presence, kill people is via that box and the rules that the box has, kind of like a genie in a lamp shit. 
But what we have here is that now he's completely loose and kind of being creative, his own force. This is what he always wanted to do, just kill people for no reason. Of course, you could still attribute the reason that in this bar he is creating his own Xenobites. For example, our favorite of the night, the CD Xenobite. Only thing lamer than the are the rest of the Xenobites of the film. Come on, they are very inventive and they have good one-liners okay i'm out of this podcast bye but yeah this, this is the this is the like like you said kind of the infamous moment of the film where the, the film is still riding the the whole lot of pinhead now being the demonic and the, the evil spirit since Elliot Spencer is still that good guy ghost in his ghost reality. And hence now we have have the boiler room nightclub massacre happening. Hmm. This is finally the moment of the franchise. This is the moment of the film and the franchise for Pinhead is finally being stumped into being just one gore monster to add to the punch. He becomes your typical slasher villain like Jason Voorhees or Freddy Krueger. Yeah, that's right. Oh, that's what they try, but they actually become... They actually go back to square one with the blood because it returns back to normal where Pinhead is inside the box again. And more than that, at the end of the film, the good guy goes, Elliot Spencer and the demonic Pinhead, they once again unite yes, and, and become one entity. So Pinhead technically is returned back into the same Pinhead he was in the previous two films where he was just this this kind of an office worker of hell, the, a bureaucrat of, of hell who just showed up to take you away because you were toying with the box. And that's part of the rules and that's his job. Yeah, and of course, if you want to go by the marketing of this film, of course, you could make the extremely lame and silly assumption. Well, that's what the trailer, for example, suggests. The assumption that this is kind of the, the final, final part, but you have to be probably on opium to go with that. Well, it could have been the final part. Unfortunately, at, at this time, the rights were owned by Dimension Films. Yeah. Pinhead also loses his temper in this film with uh, Joey, like because he wants the box so bad. But actually, he never wants it bad enough. So the the box is the the whole problem here. He, he should have taken it in the first place. He just keeps babbling about, I'm here to turn up the volume, especially my own one. And but just but that is but that's just it because. In the ham-fisted new rules of this film, Pinhead can't take the box for some odd reason. Mm, he's not in a hurry. But like He can't touch it until it's it's given to him. Which, of course, then again begs the question why the first order that, that Pinhead, while he was still inside of the, the pillar and was talking to JP, was not to tell JP to just you know go and get the box back. Mm. It makes no sense. Makes no sense that Pinhead can't touch the box unless it's being offered to him. But but oh. Pinhead is a gore villain now, so the gore villain rules apply. Yeah, when uh, when Joey leaves the club and there are the bodies laying around and Pinhead is having this speech, 
Joey just leave just leaves the scene, and then Pinhead is just kind of basically like like having this oh bummer. I will get her next time. Face doesn't yeah doesn't really hurry up. This guy is not in a hurry, you know. He has centuries, you know. And that, that is true. So Joey runs o- away from the club, and Pinhead just slowly walks after her. Yeah, and then we get of course for the. CD throwing Cenobite, whatever he's called officially, and we have the um, what's the friend of Joey's? This uh, hippie guy, anyway, has a camera in his head installed. That that's that's kind of that. This film is actually kind of ahead of its time. And, it, uh, it's not any any kind of a prevision of GoPro. No, no, no. even try that. No, no. I'm I'm saying that that this is kind of putting the human implant stuff a step further. Yeah, no, don't really know about that. Maybe this could have been the hit Google Glass. Okay. I, 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 I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I can see the references to the Google Glass in the sense that both Google Glass and the Cenobites and the camera Cenobite, they all looked pretty lame. Mm. Yeah, this installation could be kind of visually challenging for other people. But, you know, cops arrive, shooting doesn't help, and then one of the women is like, Shit! Gasoline! So, let's stand here like complete idiots and die. Mm-hmm. That's a wrap. Because she had like, I don't know, 15 seconds to run the hell out of there. Oh, it's gasoline! Yeah, in her defense, she couldn't have known. Or there was no way she could have known that the bartender... Cenobite is also freelancing as dragon and can spit fire, and that, that's kind of, that's kind of a is is the that that is my core problem with with these films the the proto Cenobites that this films film offers to us like in 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 the previous films most specifically in in Hellbound the case was made that the Cenobites were someone who had once been humans and then they had kind of a travel through their own hell. The individual hell that was stored for them when they opened the box. And they had seen all that that hell had to offer for them and that has somehow kind of alleviated them to become Cenobites. That that would have given them a rank in, in hell. And also their visuals and the and the visual design of the original four was quite iconic and quite interesting. And what what we have here basically is is a dude who has camera stuck in his head and he's wearing leather. We have a dude who has CDs stuck in his head and he's wearing leather. We have a dude who wears a leather and there is a barbed wire going around his head. We have a lady who wears a leather and her face is stretched just a bit, just just a, just an inch. And finally we have a dude who wears a leather and there's two pistons stuck in his head. Well hey, you know, I made the observation though that that Pinhead of course is is a Cenobite who is able to speak. Whereas the other Cenobites from the past haven't been very talkative, except maybe you know the lady Cenobite, and I guess that's it. And that that's it. That's it. Uh, uh, until uh, unless you count the chatterers, the 
Uh, cracking of the teeth as, as some kind of a form of communication. But here we have some friends for Pinhead who have also been given the ability to, to speak. So, yeah, kind of lame one-liners, but it's 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 a refreshing difference. It's, it makes like a difference. Pesaero, whatever that is in English. Pussy divide. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the ham-fisted translation. But anyway, one of the scenes that was kind of good was the scene in the church. And now you're probably going to hate me for it. Well, most definitely, because the scene in church is, once again, it's incredibly stupid. Like in every conceivable way. It, but it, we have it, some good dialogue, you know? And a we priest. We don't have a good dialogue. The only good dialogue from, from the priest is when the priest denounces the actual existence of demons. Yeah. And and states that they are they are just metaphors for something that's kind of inside of us. But that that one line is basically the extent of good dialogue. No 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 no. no 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 Henrik, this has some of my one of my favorite quotes of this franchise for sure, which I have actually saved in a text file like for many years because I thought it was quite effective. The delivery from Pinhead is maybe not as good as I remembered it being, but nevertheless, it's the priest goes, you'll burn in hell for this. And Pinhead goes, burn. Oh, such a limited imagination. Don't you think that was not good? No, I I, I don't think that line in itself is, is good. The, the only thing that actually works in, in the church scene and in, in Pinhead altogether at this point is well basically Doug Bradley himself like at, at this moment of the film we finally have the moment when Doug Bradley who for the past two films have been tied into playing very kind of a limited character very hold back character not to express basically anything and kind of a, a, actor wise he has he has had to make the constant effort to hold himself back when when he's been delivering his lines. And in the church, Doug Bradley is finally let loose and he can ham the scene and chew the scene as much as he pleases. And oh boy, oh boy, does, does Doug actually take the offer when it's given to him? Mm, yeah, you didn't like that. Um, I do find some comedic delight on the way how Doug Bradley chose the scene. Like, I, mm. I, I, I like how Doug Bradley plays out and kind of a, how he uses all, all the freedoms he now is being given. But that does not save the individual scenes themselves. There are some problems, definitely, I think, in his delivery in this film. For example, you have excessive laughing uh, and I think in, in an out-of-character way in this film. Uh, then, of course, you have something that is just more like a stupidity of the filmmakers, like having a very... Uh, having a close-up of Pinhead, and he is speaking and he is smiling while he is doing it and making these faces, and the makeup sucks, and the lighting is shit, which is probably the biggest problem near the very end where Pinhead is on the left side of the screen and on the right side of the screen you see the background and there is uh, Spencer, I think, on the floor. And then there are these 
<sighs> sounds that he sometimes does, especially at the last moment when he's about to get the box. Even though he can't get it if, if it's indeed like this, that he needs to be offered this box somehow. Uh, and um, then also the stupid fucking idea that Pinhead, for some reason, is going to need any kind of physical tools to get to his goals. Because in the in the original films, of course, of course, the character doesn't need any tools because he himself already is able to deliver any tools he wants. He it looks fucking dumb when Pinhead is holding some kind of a weapon in his hand. Kinda, yeah. Yeah. So Joey, of course, notices that there are some more of these demons or the Cenobites, and one of them is JP, and one of them is now Terry, and I thought they had kind of a rocking look to them, even if they are kind of lame in in this franchise. And Pinhead does get the box back because Pinhead now somehow fakes a dream and appears as Joey's daddy. And that kind of sets up the final sequence where where Spencer interrupts the fake dream and then Spencer extremely easily takes the box from Pinhead's hand and a weird fight ensues, choreographed by the great masters of arts. So, and now it looks like that the, both of the Spencers are connected again. The, the final confront, confrontation between Pinhead and, and Spencer, for those who haven't seen the film, pretty much just comes down to Spencer grabbing Pinhead's hand. And that somehow starts the fusion process between the two. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of like new rules or lack of them in this film. The, the rules are are so new that even Pinhead himself seem, seems to be uh, be unaware what the rules exactly are. Like, like Spencer makes the notion that Pinhead can't grab the box unless it's offered to him. Pinhead tries to grab the fo- a box by force in, in, in the first scene. Apparently, the, for the fusion between Pinhead and Ghost Spencer to start, Ghost Sp- Spencer simply has to touch Pinhead, yet Pinhead makes no attempt at all to avoid Ghost Spencer's touch. Mm-hmm. And, and that Ogawa reads to me like, Pinhead himself doesn't know what the rules are, like, what is going to happen if I let Ghost Spencer touch me? Or that I can't take the box unless it's being offered to me. Looks like both of them have read the script and are just flowing with it. Well, well Ghost, Ghost Spencer has has read the script. Pinhead still, I, I guess, believes that he is in true Hellraiser sequel and tries to play with the original rules. No. <laughs> Something like that. It makes no sense. Anyway, Joey drops the box into cement, which is still wet, of course, and nobody's around. And somehow it's now part of a box building, and that's where we end the film. And if I'm not mistaken, this in some way picks up in Hellraiser 4 with that house. It, it, it does, it does. That is, or, or Hellraiser 4 manages to pick up its starting position or one of its starting positions, because it's it's a combination of multiple storylines that you yeah. follow throughout the film, but 
but the modern day storyline manages to pick up from the ending of of Hell, Hell on Earth. With, with the office building scene here kind of being the most in tone with the spirit of the original Hellraiser film since it, it kind of shows you how it, it has the theme of of the box and and kind of kind of the gateways to hell being these different type of puzzles. What did you think about the end credits where we have this Hellraiser? I've never stomached like I've never managed to listen to uh, listen them through. I it. heard some something in the lyrics about Hellraiser. It's time for possession or something like that, and I think this have nothing to do with each other really. They have nothing to do with each other, and like of course, part of that my problem is that I'm not the biggest Motorhead fan. It was a Motorhead song. Okay. It, it, yeah, it was Motorhead song. Never been the biggest fan of the band. Me neither. But the the fact that the fact that it it plays at the end of the film completely wrecking the the mood that the film is has maybe tried to have. The, the, the tone of the movie is kind of all over the place. There are these weird breakups. Like, for example, many of the close-ups. The close-ups are a good example of, of, of these tonal shifts that keep happening. The film technically tries to be a scary horror film. And then all of a sudden there are these moments where there is a quick turn of a head or quick reach of an arm, like when Terry holds out the box for the first time, or in the church scene, when the priest has denounced the existence of demons, and then all of a sudden there's once again, there's a quick zoom to Joey, and she's reaching her arm, and then there is comes kind of a trailer one-liner, then what the fuck is that? And it said completely, it said it in the macho tone of voice. What the fuck is that? In a in a scene where Joey just like five seconds earlier, two seconds earlier, has been dreadfully afraid of Pinhead, who is closing on her tail, or in the very conclusion of the film, where Joey is in the Ghost Spencer's dimension, she's on her knees on the floor, she is working with the box. Pinhead is closing in, and then there's a quick turn of her head, there's an extreme close-up on Joey's face, and she says, go to hell. Once again, with this macho movie trailer, one-liner voice. Yeah, it just tells you about the quality and the the play together of the screenplay and the director right here. But I, I didn't think that Joey was pulling, or, or the Terry Farrell that was pulling up bad performance i think she was i think she was okay but uh, not given the best advice probably she was i i guess she was doing the best she could with the material given yeah yeah because at the, the film itself it's dead set on on not being able to keep keep a tone not being mm-hmm. able to stay as a horror film it it it, it itself wants to break the horror movie scenes w- with the macho one-liner, the quick quick flashy close-ups and camera zooms and the sound effects. And after those quick moments, it once again tries to rebalance itself as a scary horror movie. 
And if if that's the direction that you are going with, if that's the script you are being given, if your character really, like if the script says that your character has to stop her crying, point at, at Pinhead and go, then what the fuck is that? Well, what are you gonna do? You can't salvage that. I felt that uh, the the movie kind of starts in a very meditative way, but ultimately I decided by the end of the film very much that the meditative quality of the beginning or maybe the first half of the film is simply because the director is not able to figure out what the fuck he's doing. Yeah, I think it just wasn't thought out in any way. For the film and and when you don't have you know like a tonal idea for your film then what it ends up look looking like is very pedestrian monotone flat and that's what you get and then you have a little bit of a terror in the end and you have motorhead and kind of to top it all is to play the original hellraiser tune from the first two films as the finishing touch which feels like this song is definitely in a wrong place it feels almost like an insult when you find, when, when you get those Hellra- those original score beats. But that is much to be said because there's a lot of a lot of insults on the way still. Well, yeah, that there is. Soundtrack was composed by Randy Miller. I thought it was kind of nice, not too bad actually, but not too interesting either. I mean, it was bombastic in its way as the first two, without having any direction. However, I felt. Or it may be down to the fact that it was so fancy that I just didn't get it, you know. There's a lot of soundtracks that, that just sound like noise to me. This is kind of that, in a way. It's, it's huge. It has something catchy. It's, but nowhere near as the first and second. It's, it's kind of if, if, you like, if you like soft metal and, and soft rock and, and some, something more industrial. Then kind of a, given a droplet of of something more industrial in in the mix, like the soundtrack itself, it's it's nine inch nails. It's like mentioned, it's it's Motorhead. It's it's symphonical orchestra for that one scene. Mm, but, I'm talking about the original soundtrack. Uh, uh, oh, okay. I, yeah. I I was talking about the licensed song soundtrack. Yeah, I like a lot of. Nine Inch Nails, and I—it's like a fifty-fifty, like half of the half of the things that they do. Uh, you have to always pick that, the pick that, the that gems. It, that it is. It's it's also the same case with KMFDM, mm. who also features in the in the in the soundtrack. But the, the biggest problem when it comes to the licensed songs and and the film is that once again, the ballroom is supposed to be some kind of a ultra counterculture, alternate culture, super edge nightclub. And KMFDM, Motorhead, in, in my opinion, Nine Inch Nails, is, is not that. It, it's not the music you play in that kind of a place. Yeah. Henrik, favorite performance? Would be Doc Bradley, who pretty much carries the film on his shoulders. Yeah, kind of, even though I'm not really happy about the choices that were made in the way they play the character and maybe not even too impressed about his performance here and i never thought that he was a particularly good actor but he he does the job pretty i well. i think he i i think he kind of comes 
into fruition here. Because the dude me- does pull off a double job. He's doubling for, for the demonic pinhead and doubling there. Oh, true. The, the ghost Spencer. And the ghost Spencer actually did manage to be sympathetic. Like, I re- actually felt sympathy towards that character. I didn't like demonic pinhead. I, I mm. did like the fact that Doc Bradley was doing the scene, but I, I still didn't like the performance as a performance, and I didn't like the character. But but I did like Ghost Spencer, and I, I guess in this film that says a lot. Favorite scene? Uh, would be the the aftermath of the boiler room massacre when when Joey comes to the scene of the massacre and sees sees the havoc. I'm gravitating towards when the totem is in the room of JP upstairs. The uh, pinhead is giving these kind of fancy talks to JP. It was okay. Favorite quote? Mm, there, there were a bunch of good quotes from Pinhead. Mm-hmm. Early on in the film, when he's still stuck in that goddamn pillar, once he gets out, it, it's kind of, kind of all over the place. But uh, I, I'm kind of torn which one to pick. But, well, yeah. you, you, you have to pick one, so I maybe I would go don't flee from yourself. If you have a quality, be proud of it. Let it define you, whatever it is. Okay, well, I said this quote that is in the church about the lack of imagination, (laughs) but maybe just to change gears for this, because I'm kind of sick of that quote, because it's been around me for too long in my archives. Well, I could go with uh, JP's quote, when he has invited Terry over, and they're looking at the totem, and he makes the notion that there was somebody who made an effort to make some modifications to this totem and said, quote, she put her heart and soul into this. Which was immediately followed by that, once again, clumsy, extreme close-up zoom in, in one lady's face just to pinpoint to you what JP did mean by that. And I think there was some kind of a little laugh there to make it make it super super obvious that that didn't work yeah but otherwise i'm willing to take what i can get here but no it was pretty okay quotes here and uh what's our next category mm, a favorite kill which in my case is the hospital death has down mm. the best kill of the film i just have to have fist some cds into this so the guy who gets killed with the cds who who gets hit in the nose with a CD? Yeah, or do, the... do you mean the DJ who actually, actually does get few CDs? Yeah, the guy CD. at the club who, I believe, transforms into the Cenobite. Yeah. yeah, because later on, when the cop gets CD'd, it's, it's not even a little hit. It's like the CD gets stuck under his nose. That's not going to kill anyone. The CD does not go. It, it does not go far enough inside his head so that you could have could have damaged his spinal cord and cause damage that way. It's it, it's excruciating, really painful wound which the cop suffers, but not lethal. A random confusing question of the night would be: Henrik, do you remember when we were doing this Vitonen website and you reported on the possible film that would be coming out? Pinhead versus Michael Myers, or 
what was the title. I don't remember anymore. Thank God that never happened. <laughs> like, oh boy, would that have been a horror? Yeah, that I believe was some great brainstorming at Dimension Films when they owned both franchises at for a brief period of time. Oh my God, I I I, I so hope that Weinstein <laughs> gets raped and shanked in prison. Oh, 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 oh. um. Unfortunately, I cannot remember if you were excited about it or what, but I believe there were at least two two news articles about this <laughs> great product. Uh, I, I may have been, well, like, uh, I, I was very young. I was a retarded kid back then. So there is a small chance that I was even excited. I, I hope not. Or if I was, I hope that someday I can actually get my hands on a time machine Travel back in time in that moment and punch the kid myself in the face for being such uh, a goddamn brain checkers. I understand. I, I think I understand your view as a kid uh, for this film because kids tend to be always kind of they tend to have more positive outlook and you know you start to fantasize how it would be in your head and maybe this would actually work and be very dark and imaginative and something extremely terrifying. You you haven't had enough experiences with real yet. <laughs> well, there's that the real world of movie making as well, where in the back. <laughs> yeah. If 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 you if we would have been more smart, more knowledgeable, maybe about how film business works, then we would have forgotten that instant that shit. Yep. First image that comes to mind would be that from the boiler room massacre. It, it's it's that that one lady who deep-throats the icicle. Well, from now for now, it's it's just for me the pinhead walking around on the streets with his Cenobite companions, destroying the streets and exploding everything that they pass through for no apparent reason. But when it comes to like a shot that I think about when I when I usually think about Hellraiser three, it's it's the totem inside the room of JP. What's next, Henrik? Would it be what took you out of the experience, which was this film? Um, the way that Pinhead, that the direction that Pinhead takes in this film in general. That's that's pretty bad, I, I, I must admit. Yeah. Uh, in, in my case, I, I never, never truly was with the film from the, fir- uh, from the first place. Yeah. Not, not only the stupid plot twists, but the way that the character is performed. Not because he's playing it badly, but the decisions that they made for the character. Okay, what pulled you in? Uh, if there was something that pulled me in, it was the Ghost Spencer. <laughs> and even that really, really didn't properly pull me in. It, it did manage to get a sympathetic reaction from me, but I I wasn't like I didn't get on board with the film. Mm-hmm. There are some things that I kind of like, but there's a lot that I really don't. I'll just go with some of the action scenes on the streets with the Cenobites, dumb as they may be. What would you change in the film, Scissors of Sacrilege? The the first answer would be just delete the film altogether. <laughs> but if I would have to give a more constructive uh, answer. I would actually 
take out Pinhead as a character from the good choice. like like from point A and just force the film to find some other route. Well, realistically, they would not remove Pinhead. So if we would make a Hellraiser 3 Curry edition with Pinhead, then we would stick more to the more to the mythos or the world of the first two films, where Pinhead would be still tied to the box very much. And they would be repeating basically the same things that they already did in the first and the second one. Maybe introduce a few few Cenobites that are actually scary and, and shit. And those are the main areas for sure, yeah. But, uh, you know, it's been milked already. There's, I don't think there's a lot of story to tell, so the only option that you have is to just remake the whole goddamn thing. Pretty much, yeah. I, I don't know... Like, like I said, I haven't yet seen Judgment, which tries to open new possibilities and new doors for the franchise and new plot lines. By leaving Doc Bradley out. By leaving Doc Bradley out, and as I've come, come to understand... By introducing angels into the mix. Okay. Maybe someday in this forlorn podcast. <laughs> you really know you're watching Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth. When? You find yourself having elongated discussions with poor modern art sculptures. When you see your main character's suicide. Three adjectives to describe Hellraiser 3. The, the first one is unnecessary because that's what this film was. First and foremost, the second one is is lame because it is that in in so many aspects from the club point and with the Cenobites and and with the camera zooms and with all all that nonsense and the final one is is stupid because it it has a tonal it has a tonal problem it has a storyline problem and. Well, the, like mentioned, Pinhead's whole plan hinges on the fact that the people he comes in, comes in contact with are all mentally challenged. If, if Joey would have had two brain cells in her, Pinhead would never have acquired the box. Amen. Or something. This film is definitely lazy. They could have tinkered, reworked the entire script, as we know already. It's definitely sleepy. In the way that the tone goes throughout the film. Feels like some kind of a TV movie most of the time. And it's definitely mm, it's definitely brainless in its execution. Did you look at your watch when watching this film? Surprisingly no. No. Uh, yeah, I, I don't I don't know why it was, because I wasn't really enjoying the film. But I, I, I guess it, it it's an hour and thirty thirty minutes. Hour and 25 if you don't count in the end credits, which you don't, because like when, when the motorhead starts playing, I immediately quit the film. So it, it's not that long. Yeah, it's not a very good sign when you are able to, with your ten finger technique, to write all your notes without pausing even once and still getting the plot outline pretty much perfectly as far as I'm concerned. And Mm. And that tells about the overall speed of the film, which is slow. Hmm, what's next, Henrik? I, I guess you still have to answer. Would you recommend the film? No, fuck no. It's yeah. good enough. Yes, yeah, sa- same here, same here. Hellraiser 3 is is nothing if not skippable entry on the franchise. Uh, 
like I've mentioned before, from Hellbound onwards, the franchise takes this takes a huge notch downwards, and it's it becomes a question like none of the the sequels after two are ever on bar bar with the first two films. It just becomes a question of exactly how bad the sequels are. Some of them are even okay, and some of them are utter dog shit. And when it comes to to Hellraiser three, I, I hell I even like like Pinhead on in space more than I, I like Hellraiser three. Oh really? This ain't the worst that the franchise has to offer. Like there, there are sequels that are even more like unwatchable than Hellraiser three. Hellraiser three is is still watchable film. It just it it infuriates me because it's wasted potential foremost. Yeah, the point where you still kind of I feel that some the filmmakers still had some kind of a passion going on because this is the moment when they can still make it all right i mean they can simply just follow a successful franchise and try to do some something fun with it in their own way and after that i feel that the the passion is kind of gone i would even go to the lengths to say that this is that that it's just going to get worse from here on in but uh, maybe i need a refresher of hellraiser 4 (sighs) Hellraiser 4 is is a curious mess in in many ways. It's it's a mess, make no no mistake about it, but it it's a mess that kind of uh, exists on multiple levels at the same time. Th- this is precisely the type of bullshit why I don't recommend films actively behind the <laughs> podcast. Oh, oh really? You could have avoided this bullshit, but I know you will not do it. No, I, 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 I want, I, I, I want, I want to let you down and quit the podcast. <laughs> so maybe next time tune in for uh, what, what could, what could be the, the worst of the worst. I mean, you're aching to select some other shitty horror films, so go for it. Otherwise, I'm going to force Hell- Hellraiser Four. Yeah, well, you know, I, 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 ha- I have made recommendations you have not there, 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 there is there is there is that 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 shared google doc yeah and, and yeah. I, I i did name some films in there in in that doc yeah okay i i did do that like way way after you had actually st- stopped from following the doc and i never made mentioned to you that I had added recommendations into the document. Yeah, and I I noticed actually those changes like just a couple of weeks ago, so sorry about that. Yeah, but that could could be something. I don't know. Maybe I'll have to take another look at those. Well, I I guess we just have to wait and see what what the next episode will be. Hmm. Looking forward to that. For now, I'm just going to say that this was a podcast that goes into uncharted territories very much. We, we saw a film that exists. <laughs> and uh, the next one is going to be something like that as well. It's a film. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and Instagram. If you think that this episode was mind-blowing, you can give us five stars on iTunes. For now, I'm gonna go and drink some Coca-Cola to wash off this beast of the beast. See you later. See ya.
when the cop gets seeded. When the cop gets seeded. You, you need to reach a happy place. Listen, 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 brain check ass, brain check ass.